again. It is Adam. Welcome back to Bringing It Backwards, a podcast where both legendary and rising artists tell their own personal stories of how they achieve stardom. On this episode, we had a chance to hang out with Gordon Goodwin, who has amassed 22 Grammy nominations, four Grammy wins, and three Emmys. Not only that, he's also the leader of Gordon Goodwin's Big Fat Band. We talk about how Gordon got into music, his first jobs in the industry. He worked for Disney. He actually worked at Disneyland and then got a job scoring for the Mouseketeers when Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera weren't in it. We talk about how he landed some roles scoring different films and television shows. He worked on Animaniacs. He also did the score for the Incredibles movies. And he talked to us about how 20 years, 22 years ago now, in 2000, he decided to take a break from scoring and he wanted to start a band of, of his own and write and record his own music while still doing the, the scoring. He's been doing the band for 22 years and they've got a new EP out. We talk all about that as well. You can watch our interview with Gordon Goodwin on our Facebook page and YouTube channel at Bringing It Backwards. Be awesome if you subscribe to our channel, like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Bringing Back Pod. And if you're an Amazon shopper, a portion of your everyday purchases will help support our podcast with just a few clicks. It's super easy. Please head over to our website, bringingitbackwards.com, and click on Amazon each time you begin your purchases. Those few extra clicks will help keep our mission of providing a platform for both legendary and rising artists to tell their personal stories on how they achieve stardom so that all artists and music enthusiasts have access to meaningful and memorable advice that will help inspire their own musical journeys. To recap, please head over to bringingitbackwards.com and click on Amazon before you make each and every purchase because a portion of that purchase will add up in a big way to help support our mission. Thank you so much. We'd appreciate your support if you follow and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We're bringing it backwards with Gordon Goodwin. This podcast is about you, your journey in music, and uh, how you got to where you are now. Okay. I, I, I remember most all of, about all that process. Most okay. Of well, let's, let's hear about it. Where did, uh, born in Wichita, Kansas? Is that what I read? I was born there in Kansas. Yeah. What was that like? Tell me about growing up. Well, there. I was only there for two years, so I don't really oh. remember too much. But <laughs> okay. um, I, I do remember this. Um, we will go back there on family vacations, you know, all through my childhood. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't too crazy about it, you know, uh, but we go back there and I, and my mom and dad, my mom grew up on a farm. So we go back to this farm and it's, just, it's like rural Kansas and there's nothing but this farm and acres and acres of corn and whatever. And I'm hanging out thinking, and I remember I was about in eighth grade and I had just fallen in love with jazz. Okay. So I was big, big time into it. And, um, I would, I wanted to be anywhere else, but in Kansas at that point on a farm, okay. I wanted to be home playing my saxophone. And I just started writing music, you know, for ensembles. And, and so my cousin, she comes down and, and, and she goes, Oh yeah, I've been playing a little piano. I said, yeah. Okay. She goes, yeah. You ever heard of Oscar Peterson? I go, well, yeah. She goes, Oh yeah. Here, check out my Oscar Peterson collection. So she's got like 10 Oscar Peterson records. And, and, and I, it, it actually, if, it showed me a little bit about myself that I was making an assumption at that age that just because you're 
in a particular geographic location that you can't be connected. And this is this is like not now with the Internet. Mm-hmm. This is like, you know, in the uh, 70s or, or yeah, 70s, early 70s. So um, uh, in order to be connected, you had to make an effort, you know, to kind of find out about things outside your own you know, little world. So and she was like so into Oscar and I had gotten way into Oscar Peterson at that point as well. So um, um, from there, there on, I was like, you know, well, all we did was talk about Oscar and play his records and and everything. So um, but Kansas. Uh, you know, there's a there's a jazz uh, legacy there, you know, Charlie mm-hmm. Parker and everything. And um, and so um, and that's the other thing that I've learned over the years is that you don't just have to be in L.A. or New York or Nashville even mm-hmm. to have a deep talent pool. There are like, amazing players everywhere. And especially nowadays where you can kind of live wherever you want and, yeah. you know, and make music with people all around the world. So um, uh that's kind of a the technology may not all be good, but that's one really good thing. And, and COVID especially. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed that? Like, is it easier to collaborate with people this way? Yeah. Like, have you been the, doing the, tool, the tools have gotten better and people mm-hmm. have gotten better at using those tools. Right. Sure. So I ran, I ran a band. Um, so I did a little teaching at the beginning of uh, COVID mm-hmm. and I had kids in the band from Australia and uh, Japan and the UK and I go, look, you guys, there's no way we'd be playing together if, if it weren't for, you know, we had, a, we, had, we had a couple of different technologies that we would use in different platforms. Mm-hmm. Now, we couldn't play together at the same time because that doesn't work yet, you know. Right. But um, we could talk. We could talk about the music. And I can say, okay, now you play. And the other the student would play. I go, now, now you play and try to match what they did. And anyway, we'd talk about it. Then they'd go home and record their parts, send them to me. And I get them and I kind of, you know, put them together and maybe do a little editing and shifting. And but I would talk about that with them, too, about, you know, how do how do we if we're not in tune, how do we tune it? Or is it better for you just to learn how to play it in tune the first time, you know? And and but really, that's a reality for kids these days, for young musicians. They better get this shit together. Mm-hmm. They better get be able to uh, produce themselves, record yeah. themselves. And all over L.A. from, you know, when COVID hit, all the best high uh, upper tier studio guys, they got all their home studios going Mm -hmm. because they were doing shows like Family Guy. Just everyone recorded at home. Yeah. And it's it's amazing because now everyone's got their own like, well, there's so with technology nowadays. I mean, if you get a MacBook, you get what GarageBand or whatever. You could try to be a producer Mm -hmm. like right off. Mm -hmm. the. There's so many resources at your fingertips nowadays that's where right when now, you're growing I, up it was probably a little bit different with you're uh, kidding me you, yeah <laughs> i would imagine i mean i i learned how to require how to write music with a pencil and, wow. and so and a piece of paper and a piano and and so when i when the when the personal computer came in i had to kind of retool mm-hmm. to to have my process be from hearing in my head down my left arm to my hand and then to capture it you know and I actually kind of like that. I like the draftsmanship. I like the feel of the pencil and the paper and all that. But once I made the transition to using a mouse and a keyboard, I'm better. I'm a mm-hmm. better composer. And part of it is part of it. And I, I'm kind of going all over the place from your question of like, how was Kansas? But no, this is where I want to go. This is awesome. okay. Part of, <laughs> part of the process for me for composing in those days that I'd have to play it on the piano to evaluate is this good is it structurally working or is it feel right i had mm-hmm. to play it right mm-hmm. and 
meaning I was involved in the performance of it. And if it didn't work, I'd always say now, did it not work because I didn't play it good enough? Or did it not work because there's some structural problem I need to address? Whereas now I sit back and hit the space bar and listen and not have to be a participant in that process. And it's made me better for sure. That is so cool. I mean, it's crazy how technology has advanced, right? I mean, to well, go guess- from writing it, I mean, there's probably a ton of musicians out there that can't even read music. I mean, especially band, guys that are in huge bands. And mm-hmm. that was just never something that they yeah. cared to learn or needed to learn. Or Well, that's a good question that's been with us even prior to technology is, do you need to know what things are called in order to understand them, right? Mm-hmm. Because because I studied, you know, I went to college and I studied it kind of old school academia way, you know. And I, and I found that there were these terms that they had I, I had an intuitive understanding of what they were describing, even though I didn't know they were, it wasn't called that, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, um, I mean, for me, um, learning it that way gave me a, a, a better foundation than if I just would have kind of stumbled through, because I had done that through high school. I just kind of stumbled through it to try to find my own thing. And I missed a lot of stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. then, and when I got into college, I had, I had like professors saying, hold on, slow down, pal. You gotta, you gotta learn to crawl before you can walk essentially, mm-hmm. you know? So they had, they, they pulled me all the way back. And matter of fact, not just with my writing, but with my uh, saxophone playing, like I had a terrible embouchure, you know, where the, the mouthpiece goes right here. So the mouthpiece kind of goes here and I, I was doing this. I had my lip, I got, and I rolled my lip over my teeth. Mm-hmm. Whereas the right way to do it is to roll your lip out and you provide a little pad for oh. the reed, right? So the sure. reed is vibrating against your lip and it's, it's a softer thing than if you were pressing on the reed with your teeth, like I was doing. Why did I have such a crappy sound? That was why, but I didn't know. And I never had a teacher that told me till college. So I had to break everything down and <sighs> learn this again. And you know what? You think you think I would learn my lesson, but no. Uh, when I was 25 years old, I got a gig conducting and playing piano for Johnny Mathis. And part of that gig was I had to play kind of all, I had to play a lot of jazz, but also kind of concert style stuff. And we had this West Side Story medley. It was just Mathis and me. And I had to play all this stuff. And my hands would get cramped up, especially my right hand. Mm-hmm. And so I went to a teacher. I go, I, I need your help. I, I can't play this stuff without, I'm worried. I'm 25. I'm like, I've got arthritis or what's going on? He goes, dude, uh, I don't think I can fix you. You're too old. Whoa. I just, I go, I'm, I'm begging you, man. You got to help me. He goes, all right, tell you what, I'll help you on one condition. He goes, turn around. I go, yeah. So I, I turn around and he, he hits a note on the piano. He goes, what's this note? I go, a D. All right. What's this note? He hits a note up at the top of the keyboard. That's a B flat. All right. What are, what are these two notes? And I named the notes. He goes, all right, what's this? And he played a cluster of like about six notes. I go, uh, that's it. A, B, C. And I called him out. He goes, all right. Oh, wow. Because my ear was good enough. I could do it. He goes, all right, I'll take you. So what he told me was, he goes, first of all, your piano bench is at the wrong height. And I never thought about the height of the piano bench. He goes, but if you're, if you're playing 
like Rachmaninoff, you know, where you have to really pound or, or say Jerry Lee Lewis, where you have to play that kind of hard style, mm -hmm. you need to have a higher bench so you can get over the keys. But if you need to play with facility and fly, your bench needs to be a little bit lower. So your hands are not like this. They're more like this. That's first of all. Second of all, um, you need to have your hands breathe with the music. So if, if, the, if the phrase is, you had to let your body go with it. And my body was, I was always just kind of like locked down, you know, because mm -hmm. so finally, why are you holding your breath? You need to not hold your breath. I go, I'm not holding my breath. He goes, you are, man. And I realized if it was a hard passage, I would do this, you know, and at the exact time, your body needs the oxygen. I was holding my breath like an idiot, right? <laughs> So anyway, he fixed all this stuff. And I, I haven't had pain in my wrist ever since. But that was my inclination was to rush to the music. I loved it so much. I just wanted to get there and start playing and jamming. And, and I missed a lot of fundamentals that were messing me up. Mm -hmm. so, so for me, having kind of a more organized you know, methodology of learning music saved me. Mm -hmm. right? well, when did you realize that you had the, you know, this almost essentially perfect pitch. If you can hear a note being played, right? I mean, that's yeah, it, quite it, a it, skill to have. Yeah, you know, um, I think it probably developed by the time I got to college. Okay. Before that, you know, it was kind of hit or miss or it was maybe kind of relative pitch. And by the way, here's another interesting thing about perfect pitch is that um, uh, David Foster uh, was mm -hmm. always... Um, you know, very prideful of his perfect pitch. It was amazing. And when he got to be, a, I think, in his mid-50s, and I, I was told this story by Jay Graydon, guitar player, producer, and, you know, legendary guitar player. And he, mm -hmm. and he said, uh, he goes, yeah, David Cumbie was, I, I can't, I'm losing my pitch. And sometimes when you get in your 50s, it, some, for some reason, they don't know why, it starts to slip. So, I know. Hearing the note differently? I don't, I don't, I don't I, know. I, 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 well, so what, and what Jay does, and Jay goes, I, I, my pitch is more kind of relative, but I also have developed the ability to hear color. So, and that's kind of what I do. If I hear a D, I think that's a D, I guess, you know, I can hear what it sounds like on the piano. I can he kind of hear the overtones because I played it a million times. I, could, I, I know what it sounds like on a saxophone because I've played that a million times. So it's kind of the, um, I'm, if I'm off, I'm never off by more than a half step or so. But I can feel it slipping a little bit away from me now. I can. It's just that interesting. It, I know it's really interesting, and um, not to the point that it's affected uh, my abilities very much. But you know, when you're when you're, when you're like really in tune with it, you know, you mm -hmm. can. It's like anything. You put energy into something, and you're really in touch with it. Like right now, my tenor saxophone sitting right over here to my left. Mm -hmm. I haven't touched it for two weeks. Because I've been working, busy writing and stuff. I've been playing piano a lot, but not okay. the tenor. I know I'm going to have to pay a price. It's going to make me pay, you know. And I have, I have to do eh, a couple of weeks away. I have to do a, a solo thing. So I need to get on that sucker 15, 20 minutes a day and earn my way back up the hill, you know. Yeah, I think that's valuable advice for a musician. I mean, you've been doing this. You have all these credits, all these awards, and you still know that you have to go back and play the thing for 20 minutes up until yeah. like, I mean, knowing that you could probably go in and do it, but it's like an athlete. I mean, if, right. you know, who are, LeBron James took three weeks off and didn't exercise or practice at all, he'd have to get back kind of in that rhythm. 
you'd see the rust on him. Even right. even a, a genius like LeBron, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly right. Exactly right. So, um, but I I do think though there's also um, there's also a a mental part of it to to um, telling yourself okay because see I used to stress about all the things that I did, meaning. Mm-hmm. Like I'd go play piano, I'd go down this road. Then I'd pull back and I'd play the saxophone. I'd, then I'd back out of that road and I'd do writing. And I'd back out of that road and I'd, I could do conducting the orchestra. Then now I have to add another road. I have to learn about sample technology and computer, te- you know, and all that stuff. So all these different balls in the air. And mm-hmm. I used to think I'd be such a better saxophone player if I just did that. Probably true. Um, but I was carrying that anxiety on stage. And so like with a big fat band, I had, I used to give myself one sax solo per concert because I have five other great sax players in the front row. Yeah. You have a huge, I mean, what is it? There's like what? 30? No, no. There's like 18 people. Oh, 18 people. That's what it was. So, but they're all like amazing. So I'm going to give them stuff to do, you know? Mm -hmm. So I do have my one solo and I used to get up and all right, have I practiced? Have I done my long tones? And that anxiety would, would does not belong on stage. Mm-hmm. I finally told myself, you know what, if you, if this is a problem for you, then just don't play the saxophone, quit being a baby, put it away or get up there and play the damn thing. You've been playing it since you were in eighth grade enough, man. And to have a little more of a mind over matter thing, you know, because mm-hmm. saxophone, you can maybe get away with it with a trumpet. It's definitely a more of a physical you know, athletic thing, you know, mm-hmm. especially with mm-hmm. the cops, you know, but with saxophone, I could probably get through one solo without being a freaking crybaby about it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, uh, a lot of it, a lot of it's definitely up here for sure. Sure. Well, going back a bit, I, you said seventh grade, eighth grade is when you started playing saxophone or you, you were doing yeah, yeah. it from there and clarinet in fourth grade and then okay. saxophone in seventh grade. Right? Okay. And you obviously when you got into college for, for music, were you doing, was it for saxophone? Was that kind of your instrument or did well, you, when did you yeah, progress to the piano? Yeah. Okay. It, it, in those days I had to, you didn't even have a commercial music major in college. I had to pick okay. an instrument to major in. So I picked the saxophone. Okay. Um, which is a good call actually. But, and, and my teacher was a studio woodwind player and he did a lot of TV shows in the sixties and seventies. So, so he kind of taught me a lot about the business, taught mm-hmm. me about flute and clarinet and all the, the different doubles I would need to do. But I also was studying counterpoint, you know, and music theory. And I was studying how learning how to conduct an orchestra. I was learning how to orchestrate. I was learning music history, things I never would have chosen to do ever. And mm-hmm. at the same time, I was playing in a band at a club at night. So we were playing, you know, Stevie Wonder and, and the Beatles and Earth, Wind and Fire and that stuff. So I was learning more about pop music and, and what makes that valuable. Mm-hmm. And I was learning about classical music and the difference between Bach and Stravinsky and Debussy and Tchaikovsky, you know, stuff I didn't know at all when I was in high school. I was just a jazz nerd complete mm-hmm. jazz snob, you know? Um, so when I got into college, uh, my world opened up quite a bit. And um, uh, I take on a, a lot of pride in it, actually. Yeah. You know? I mean, I, I, I love all those uh, styles of music. And I think they kind of inform what I do, for better or for worse. Because nowadays, especially for the people that have to market and sell your music, they want to know, what is it? What box do I put it in? Right. Whereas with our, with the big fat band, one thing sounds kind of like Count Basie and the other sounds like Worth, Wind and Fire. The other sounds like, you know, John Williams or something. So mm-hmm. it, it's a little bit harder to market, but I think that 
that ties into an artist like primary responsibility is to be honest and write what sounds good to you. Mm-hmm. Not what your record label wants you to do. <laughs> right. Not what, you know, your advisors are, even what your fans want. I know, and maybe this is a controversial in some way, but I mean, really, I think just to be honest um, is, is our main responsibility to be honest about what we, what you're doing. And some people like you and some people don't, you know, well, yeah, I think people know they I've talked to a lot of, uh, you know, upcoming musicians or maybe they had like a, t- a viral TikTok song or something like that. And it's like, yeah. then what are the like I asked them, like, do you just try to chase that? Like, OK, that worked. Do I do you continue to chase that or did that work because you're being authentic and being you? And mm-hmm. then people resonated with that. I, f- I feel like it's more of the latter. Like, I think if you're being authentic, it's obvious if you're trying to chase something that I think so I think so I think that is obvious I think you have to give your audience credit to Mm -hmm. be able to to be able to discern when somebody's being contrived sure and somebody's being real and authentic but on the other hand here's the next question you know so that was valid for you at at one stage of your age and development Mm -hmm. Uh, is it going to stay valid can you sustain it Right. Are you going to keep doing that again? Or are you going to kind of, well, what's the next step for you? You know? Mm-hmm. And it was in taking those next steps that I started to run into the walls of the limitations of my training, you know? Mm-hmm. Now I, we could probably name artists that have sustained long careers doing the same thing, I guess. But Not I mean, if you lot, think, well, you know, think about, like the Beatles, I mean, look at the difference between their early music and where they ended up, you know? Right. And, and so, um, and they weren't even a band very long. (laughs) No, they weren't. (laughs) Well, if they like, look at you too. I mean, you two has had hits for like the past four, at least four decades. They've had hit records. But did you hear what Bono just said? Uh Uh-uh. He was quoted as saying, he goes, I I listened to some of those songs and I'm embarrassed. Wow. And he goes, and I never really liked the name of the band. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, you two is easily one of the biggest bands of all time. If not, and, like the and he, said career. he says something about a manager or somebody pitched the name to them about how good it would look on a t-shirt with a, with a letter and a number. Some, and they go, okay, well, that's yeah. All right. That works. Okay. <laughs> Listen, I think it's important to actually have, to, to have a packaging and a presentation that, that fits the music and that is uh, memorable. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we called our band the big fat band when we did it. I was trying to come up with a, this is in 2000. Okay. I wanted to come up with a name that conveyed that it wasn't Glenn Miller or Count Basie, that we do play funk music and rock and roll and, you know, different, more contemporary ideas. And our records sound like a contemporary record, not like a a record made in a club with two microphones, you know? Right. And so a friend of mine suggested that. And I said, well, fat, am I going to be embarrassed by that word in about 10 years or five years? He goes, well, if you are, then change it. So, and who was the guy, who was the rapper that claimed that he invented, that he uh, patented Came up the with word fat. fat? I forget who it was. I can't remember, but I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Because I remember it was like fat with a PH. It was like this right. huge thing. Right. And so, <laughs> so I said, screw it. Let's do it. Big fat band. Because fat kind of implies, you know, you know, weight and importance and, you know, and uh, whatever. So, mm-hmm. and it just kind of got, it just stuck. Now I don't think people think of it as as, as a hip hop term, you know. No, uh, necessarily, but you know, because really, I think the if end- you 
Sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go. I was just going to say, I think spelling with a PH, hell, like if I saw the big fat band, I would be expecting to see a bunch of really fat people in a band yeah. playing together. Where the PH is like, oh, maybe like they're fat. Like, oh, they're awesome. Like, like that yeah. was fat. Like that was cool. Like in the nineties. Right. And then, or it's like the big fat, like this big band of people. Like, I, I, you can convey the, the word a little bit differently with the spelling that you use. Well, what's the acronym fat stand for again? It's like fairly pretty hot and tempting is one I've heard. I don't, I, I've I heard that no there's idea. a, there's like three or four that I've heard. That's one that I early one pretty Not hot and tempting, but yeah, look it up and see. There's a couple others that are less G rated. Uh, let me see. Pretty hot and thick. Okay. Pretty hot and tempting. Pretty hot at that. Uh, let me see. Physically healthy and trim. <laughs> there you go. Uh, peace, honor, and truth. Uh, those are the ones that are coming up with now. Well, I, I like I, I like the energy of the word, actually, mm -hmm. because the the uh, the truth about our band is that the guys do bring a lot of intensity and energy to what we play. So if mm -hmm. we're playing, if we're playing a figure and say it's kind of a funk figure, we're going to go. We're not going to do it that way. We're going to go. We're going to put out some air mm -hmm. as we play. We're gonna, and and um, that's the difference between. But when we play a, a Count Basie style thing, we are going to soften up our attack and, and make a stylistic adjustment to play a lick in, in a style that was defined by that band. Mm -hmm. By the same token, we're going to play a funk lick as defined by Earth, Wind & Fire or Tower of Power, you know, the way that the way those guys kind of develop the language, mm -hmm. of, you know, for that style. And so and that's what's good about using studio musicians, because these guys have have studied all those forms of music and they're, they're like chameleon, you know, so they can, they can, you know, turn on a dime, right. Uh, you know, to play whatever style you want, which is pretty great. It's a pretty, <laughs> it's a pretty for a composer to have people like that, that can take your music and lift it off the page and make it better, make it feel right. You know, cause let's face it on the notes on a page or nothing, you know, but mm -hmm. if you want, you feel it in here. And I know that sounds a little bit, um, romanticized and, 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 and you know people that are not in the industry tend to romanticize the whole process because it is really mysterious you know right, right the process of creating how do you how do you create something out of out of nowhere and i learned to do it because i uh and in, in especially in hollywood you know you have a deadline i have to have this i have to have this piece of music written by tonight so i can't go out and look at the mountains and the, the you know and meditate and let it gestate. I, I just have to put a note down and then another note down. And, and I have to rely on my knowledge of the, where the target is, right? Like if, right. if I have to write a heroic theme, I know that the, an upward leap of a fifth or more sounds heroic, right? Da, 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 right, right? right. Or like yeah. Indiana Jones. Da, 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 da. It's a major seventh leap. So when you have that reaching up interval, it sounds like you're like reaching for something. Anyway, I know all that stuff. So I can kind of use my craft to do it. And once in a while you get inspired and it just comes to you and you write it down and you're, and you're done. Other mm -hmm. times you just have to grind it out, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, um, um, but like, I don't know, speaking of the Beatles, if you watch that get back documentary mm -hmm. on Disney plus, 
and you're what I'm watching these guys and they're, they're coming up with songs like get back Uh and let it be songs that we know, you know, so well in our culture and everything. And I'm watching and they're doing it. Basically the four of them are sitting there and Ringo's just sitting there and he's playing along and just not saying a word. And Paul and John are kind of like going at it. And it's mostly Paul, Mm -hmm. you know, and he's going, Jojo wasn't that he thought it was, you know, what's that Jojo something. right? And they're just the agony of creation, but it's spread out over days and days and days. And that's one way to do Mm -hmm. it. Definitely one way. Is that not my way? I mean, I, I sit in here and it's a solitary thing. It's like a, you know, almost they had cameras on them. And I know that was a problem because they, they kind of reference it a couple of times in the, in the, in the dog. Oh yeah. 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 The cameras are, yeah. You know, I mean, and it's they're almost fighting like, right at that time too. It's like they George were fighting isn't and, there and, and George, and, you know, yeah. George quit the band, you know? Yeah. It's like th- that time. And then, and, and you could tell that there's kind of this weird thing with Yoko and then it was like, all right, in that time. And it's just like, yeah, I know. So it's almost <laughs> like you like a, you know, they, there's a, a thing in science where the, where the, when you observe an event, you, you, you affect the outcome of the event when they're doing uh, an experiment. I figure yeah. there's a name for that too, you know? So, well, I had a guy that wanted to film me composing and I go, there's nothing to film. I'm just sitting here like half <laughs> <laughs> the time. And then I go, oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, but because it's hard to see, it becomes it becomes really mysterious to lay people, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so a, a lay person can more relate to the Beatles, the four of them grinding this out over the period of four five, six, ten days. Mm-hmm. They can see that happening, even though it's it's a little tedious, even you know, to watch. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, it's not an efficient way to do it, and and to do it in uh, to write for a film, it'd be impossible. You can't you can't take that kind of time. You know, mm-hmm. you got to get there. And so, right. of course, the more you do it, the quicker you are at being able to kind of find solutions to musical problems, and also knowing your client, you know, who you're yeah. working for, what they like what they don't like, you know, a lot of that uh, does factor in. How did um, you get involved in that? I mean, I, I saw that I read something about you worked at Disneyland and like you were able to, is that what kind of was your first little break? That was the first, first, yeah. First gig ever. First professional gig was at Disneyland. And then you were able to what, write for the Mouseketeers or? Uh, yeah, they had a, they had a Mouseketeer reunion show and they gave it to me to, to, to arrange. And um, was that your first like arrangement that you had been paid for too? Or were you doing um, that prior? I, I had gotten hired by colleges and high schools to commissions for their jazz bands. I, I had done that up to that okay. point, but that was probably the first commercial music writing job. And you know what? I really screwed it up. They didn't fire right? me, but I kind of screwed it up. Cause you know what I did? I, uh, this is an interesting epiphany that I had because Backing up, when I wrote my first chart for a big band when I was in eighth grade, I was very nervous. I didn't want to do it. My band director encouraged me and he goes, write it. We'll play it. So so I wrote something and I and I I remember thinking, all right, I'm going to make it so my the, the kids in the band, my my you know classmates really like it, because if they like it, they'll play it and they won't make fun of me. 
Right. You know, you're in middle school. It's a tough. Right. That's that's like the worst time of your life. I have a right. kid. Exactly. My, my so, older son's in middle school now. And I'm like, don't worry. This is the well, worst times of your life with the kids bullying you. You know what? Those <laughs> the, the people that teach at that level are, are complete heroes, man. I, don't oh, know how they I do. know. I would never do that. That's yeah. like, yeah. Anyway. So I, that was my first experience with writing right for the players, make them like it. And then you'll get success, which, okay. So I grow up first gig Mouseketeers. I'm writing for the players. I'm putting all my little hip chords in. I'm putting like little kind of jazzy things on these songs, which didn't really need them. Mm -hmm. But the players thought it was great. And I remember I was on the stage. We were doing a rehearsal and the head of entertainment was right around the corner talking to somebody. And I heard him say, I heard him say, Gordon Goodwin, you know, that guy's got no commercial sense at all. And I thought, what does he mean by that? No commercial sense. I'm thinking, well, screw you, man. You couldn't write this, you know? And I kind of, first I got a little offended and then I started to think about it over the years, actually. And I realized I had no business putting my little jazzy stuff in those charts. It was a Musketeer show. It wasn't about what I thought it needed. It was about what my employers thought it needed. So um, I realized that I... I don't need to write for the musicians that are playing. The musicians are just, you know, employees just like me. So now this is a difference between writing for hire and writing for my own stuff. When I'm writing for my own stuff, then um, I definitely take the players into consideration because I know they're going to play it. I'm going to write to suit them as well as, uh, you know, my own aesthetic. Right. But I've learned writing in Hollywood that you got to let go because they don't give a shit. They're like, I've had people say to me things like, how dare you bring this in? What are you trying to screw my movie up? I'm like, well, wow. it took me, you know, all night. It sucks. Get rid of it. And I didn't think it sucked. Right. But, and whether sometimes it's a power play on their part, maybe, or something. There a lot of times filmmakers are under a lot of stress because the, the schedules are crazy. Mm-hmm. And um, so we combine like a strong ego and personality and lack of sleep and maybe too many drugs or whatever might be going on with them. Then it can get a little bit rough and tumble, you know, so you have to be able to go. You're right. Let me go and start again and go home with no sleep and start again. And um, yeah, that must be pretty. I, I would have. It's like, you know, if you're like a video editor for a commercial, it's got to be the same thing. You put something together and they're like, yeah, I don't like this. And you're like, well, you know, you hired me to make this. And that was my interpretation of what you're at. And now you're saying, but with, you know, now you don't like it. Like, I don't, it's, it's so um, it, it's based off, you know, solely on opinion. Right. But the guy, that's, the guy that's signing the check, Right. His he has the, he has the, his his the biggest opinion. Counsel. Right. Yeah. Which is, I'm sure, a hard thing to juggle. I mean, I, I, does that just come with doing it a lot or doing it enough to where you form relationships with these producers and that's these it. people? That's that it. You if you get know. a relationship with somebody, then they trust you more. And uh-huh. then and then you you don't go through that as much um, with somebody that, that you trust. And um, like, for instance, on the Incredibles movies. hmm. The director of that Brad Bird, you know, but by the second one, he was like, you guys, you got it, you know? Oh, okay. Yeah. It was just, he, he knew that what you did the first time was good, obviously really good. And he's yeah. like, okay, well he, they get what I'm looking for. 
And, and it's and it takes a, a load off his shoulders. That's one thing he doesn't have to worry about, you know. Now mm-hmm. he he'd be at the sessions because he loved going to the scoring sessions. And he might say, that right there, that character, it looks like she knows something that too soon. She she doesn't have that information yet until the next scene. So can we can the music somehow and I I look at oh, yeah, you're right. There's a high violin note that happens. And for some reason, that violin note made the character seem like she understood something that she didn't really know yet. So it's like interesting. So he would make, you know, like, a, a, you know, story related comments about how the music is affecting the visual image. I know it's fascinating. Um, it really is. I mean, having the knowledge, like where you're talking about, like a heroic scene, it's got to, the, the notes got to go up. Right. I mean, or like right. the, just the, how, how much the score adds to a film, I think is way more than most people can real like even notice like it, just normal yeah you know movie watchers well it's like, oh yeah this is a cool movie and then it's like you really listen if you took all the music out of it or took all the whole score out of it it would be a totally different film right uh, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that and like our, our culture is visually acclimated for the most mm-hmm. part and um uh and the other thing is the way they mix films especially like action movies and stuff um, sound effects are more important. Sound effects and dialogue are more important than music. And music, the kind of the current thinking is, this is kind of an unspoken and unwritten thing, but it seems to be the case. Music and melody, especially melody, has a personality and takes, they think that it takes the, the viewer out of the world. It, it, it um, makes it seem fake. So that's why a lot of film music today is more sound design mm-hmm. than uh, melodic because a melody has a real kind of definitive character. Watch an older movie. You'll hear, you'll hear these melodies and they're married to the characters, you know, uh, 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 in a permanent way. But so they're less interested in that these days. So they want melodies to be really uh, bland and something that is kind of almost unnoticeable. Maybe you can feel it. Or they like to have like just kind of grooves and things going on. And it becomes uh, it becomes wallpaper, actually, because it's sometimes the music, you know, especially in those action movies, it never goes away once mm. it starts. And that's the way it used to be with cartoons when we were. Uh, I used to work at Warner Brothers and uh, for Spielberg and we would do Pinky in the Brain and Animaniacs and all those cartoons. Oh, wow. And those cartoons, the music never, ever stopped because with 2D animation. Um, the music helped get, give reality to the characters. It also helped ground the characters mm-hmm. because to have one of the hardest things for those 2D animators was to have a character feel like it weighed something. So when they're walking, to have them feel like their feet was actually being pulled down by gravity to the group. So music would help do that. So if a character's walking, the music's going to go do, 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 do. Oh, yeah. And they called that Mickey Mousing, where the music would do exactly what the character did. Now that's what less at less in style these days, you know, mm-hmm. but they called it Mickey mousing, uh, you know, back in the days. And, and with the shows we were doing uh, for Spielberg, it was all that constant music. And, um, uh, but it was great. It was, it was a lot of fun. And, uh-huh. um, and we, was that, you know, like, how do you get to that point? I mean, you're, you just start working your way up and like doing maybe getting hired on smaller gigs. And like, how do you eventually kind of climb your way to something like, you know, Animaniacs or Incredibles or. Right. right. Well, for me, it was, um, 
to get Animaniacs, it took me two years of kind of pursuing the supervising composer. It was a guy named Richard Stone who, who uh, passed away. Uh, pancreatic cancer took him oh, in a wow. year right after the, all the shows ended, which is a sad thing. But Richard, I, I took him to lunch and I can wake up to some sessions and I played him some of my stuff and he was cool, but <clears throat> it was kind of like, well, I don't have any openings now, but then somebody left to go to Disney. Uh-huh. So, so, so we had about six composers doing all the work and, uh, and that guy left. And then I was a, he had a, an opening. So he called me and uh, gave me two cues on a Sylvester and Tweety cartoon. And one of them, one of my cues was fine. The other was not fine. And he, and he said, fix this, come in next week. So I was, I was like, Oh God, I thought I had blown it. You know? So I kind of fixed it the way he wanted next week. He goes, all right, you're good here. Do three cues for next week. The next, next week after that six, after that, I got a whole episode. And then I was, oh wow. so it was just like, you know, gaining their trust. And, um, um, but just really it slowly is. building on within that. It's like, yeah, you, you get the job. Now you're, you're at Warner brothers and you're one of the composers and it's like, okay, well, we're going to give you this little bit. And then you, once you yeah. prove yourself there, they open it up and then open but, up and then they give you, it is all about relationships. Really. Mm-hmm. It is, you know, and, and my first, the first animated uh, cartoon that I did, I got it because another composer, a list guy turned it down and said, Oh, you try Gordon. He might be good. I think he gave him a couple names and, he told them that I had worked on Scooby-Doo and the director of this new cartoon had also worked on Scooby-Doo, but I hadn't worked on Scooby-Doo. But when I took my meeting, mm-hmm. he goes, we've, the guy goes, we've come a long way since the Scooby-Doo days. Right. I go, we sure have. <laughs> and then didn't I didn't even know. He didn't know. He didn't like, he looked at me. He was thinking, he thought, oh, yeah, we used to work together. So I just didn't say anything and I got the gig. And then that led to other stuff. You know, that is awesome. That is so funny. Isn't that great. <laughs> you know, that's the answer. When you're asked to, can you do this? The answer is absolutely. I can do it. Then you go home and figure out how to do it. Right. Right. And especially like, with YouTube nowadays, like, Oh, do you know how to use this program? Yeah, of course. I've used it's it right there. a million times. I know. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, it's right so there. For, uh, all the information is right uh, five seconds away. Mm-hmm. Are you still writing for film and everything? Because I, I, I want to talk to you about the the, the record you put out. What is it? Yeah. October? Yeah, we, it, was an, it was an EP. Yeah, we yeah. did. Yeah, I am still doing a lot of commercial work. But um, I made a decision in 19, let's see, 1999. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was on the Warner Brothers uh, scoring stage, conducting an orchestra, like 40 piece orchestra. And I was going, I remember thinking, is this me? Is this it? Because at Warner Brothers, I had to write the way they wanted me to write, you know, mm-hmm. and I was at Disney. I had to write the way they wanted me to write. And that was the job. And it was great. It was fine. But I, I remember thinking I was 40. I go, do I ever plant my flag? Mm-hmm. Or is this it? It's great. If this is it, that's great. But I'm, geez. So I went home and I started to write. uh, I started to think about my first chart in eighth grade, the one I wrote for my friends. Uh You know, I started to think about when I fell in love with big bands and jazz. So maybe, so I I, I hadn't written any big band music for probably 10 years. So I just start. I would work from 10 at night to one in the morning. And my kids were pretty young. So it was, Mm -hmm. you know, we were all in the middle of all that. But I, just wrote every night from 10 to one. And um, before about six months, I had, you know, some material. And then I called my friends and we recorded it. 
and uh, got a record deal. And then all of a sudden now I'm talking to you, you know? Wow. So, but my, when I decided to, to claim my space creatively, my, uh, uh, my life became easier because I, um, I guess the point to try to get to is that you, if people, you get to the point where if you like me, uh, that's wonderful. It feels good if you like me, mm-hmm. but if you don't like me, then, oh, well, <laughs> right, right. You, you have okay. to get there, you know, and when you finally get there, there's so much weight that gets off your shoulders. It's incredible, you know, so, um, and it was the process of uh, deciding to start my own band at a time where I wasn't sure I could do it. I didn't know if they would follow me or if I didn't know how to get a record deal. I didn't know how to get gigs. I didn't know anything, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, but um, that decision unlocked a lot of things for me. So when I made that decision over the next uh, 10 years, my creative or artistic um, equity went up. Mm-hmm. Right. My financial equity went down. Because jazz does not pay the same as this stuff does. Right. It just doesn't. Matter of fact, it, you know, I don't know, you can, I don't know if you can see back on my wall, or go all of our records up there. Yeah, I can see them. So each one of those records lost money. Each one. Probably, probably each one costs about between fifty dollars and $100,000. Wow. And they all lose money. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you, who would keep doing that? <laughs> right. When you start a yeah. business and you lose money every single every time. time yeah. Who does that, right? But um I think that uh, there are reasons to do things besides money, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I like money, I need it. We all need it, you know? But um so my life is a co- it's a combination of doing the things I love and then once in a while like I just finished a project for uh I signed an NDA so I can't say two projects for a company whose name we've mentioned uh, uh, on this, on this podcast. Okay. And um, and they paid, they paid well, you know, so Mm -hmm. I can now afford the EP that you mentioned a minute ago is called the reset. And we did, we did five tunes. We want to do five more release that as a like CD and vinyl, hopefully in the fall. Now I can pay for it. (laughs) Now I have the money to pay for it. Right. So, um, and of course, you know, record sales are just, not happening for anybody anymore. Yeah. It's just right? streaming, right? Yeah. It's streaming royalty. I mean, you know, they pay you like what, like a percentage of a percentage of a penny or something like that, a stream. It's like in, yeah. Next impossible to really make a whole ton of money from that. Yeah. Right? I can't believe that they got that bias, but nobody knew, you right. know, when the whole streaming model was coming together as always musicians were, you know, and our representatives, the musicians union, whoever else, were late to the game mm-hmm. and didn't understand what was happening and how to be able to get, um, you know, like a, any kind of a fair remuneration for being the creators of this IP to use a caustic word, you know, of this mm-hmm. intellectual property. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how, I don't know how to change it. Um, uh, there are various people that have fought it and uh, tried to keep their songs off of YouTube. Right. And I don't know. I, I just feel like, the point of it is to, I guess I, maybe I'm lucky that I can, you know, afford to just put it out there and not make money and, but be able to reach people, you know, right. and meet people like you and just start, you know, new relationships based on our love of music. I think that's, I think that's important too, mm-hmm. but um, I don't know if, if I'd advise some young kid to do it, 
I mean, you know, my family paid a price for it, you know, vacations we didn't take. I mean, you imagine what kind of car I'd be driving around if I wasn't spending $100,000 on a big band record. <laughs> it wasn't selling. That's a good boy, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know. well, at least you get, obviously you get to do what you love doing that. And there if, it is. if you need, and you can always, because you've built this reputation and built this CV of, of, of work that you've done, you can, you have the, the luxury of going, okay, I'm going to write a record for this, but if I need to go mm-hmm. work, I'm going to go. I can go score this and it'll help subsidize some of the money or whatever, however it may be. Um, but if, for the people that aren't doing that, what would you do? Like, what advice would you give them? Like, is there a certain tool or a specific like road or you're seeing now yeah. that can kind of help that? I mean, obviously it's oh. changed since when you were doing the Disney yeah, stuff it's, up it's until now. It certainly has, you know, but I think that the, uh, the, one thing that has been the same between now and then is that I don't think there's one uh, formula that works for everybody. So I think it, I think everybody has to get out there and, and cut their way through the forest and find their own path. I really think that's, especially if you are aspired to be a composer, songwriter, producer, you know, you have to find out, you know, what your, what your gifts are and what you love and keep looking all day, every day for people to share that information with. And that means that takes a deliberate uh, effort and it feels, it feels um, we're all on this, in this position at various points, I'm reaching out to people for gigs too, you know, and it always feels a little awkward. Right. And so, you know, there, there's an art to it to be able to say, Hey, just wanted to let you know, you know, I love your work. I'd love the opportunity to work for you. If I ever can, here's my stuff. Thank you. And then back off, you know, Mm-hmm. And plant that little seed and maybe like with uh, with uh, Animaniacs, it took two years, you know, for that seed to flower. So I actually got the gig. Mm-hmm. So um, but it's like the, I wrote a piece, uh, a concerto, a trumpet concerto called The Single Step. And basically it's like one step. You've got to take that first step and then it's the next step. And maybe that sounds like a cliche, but if you look at the top of the mountain, it'll be just too to uh, disillusioning. You can't look at the top of the mountain. Look at that next step. What can I do today that would advance, you know, me towards my goals? And um, certainly, uh, you know, networking and, and meeting people um, is, uh, I think, a key to it. But you also have to make sure that your shit is together when your shot comes. And I got there in the nick of time. I fixed my technical problems in the nick of time. I got that big job with Johnny Mathis, which we, we became lifelong friends. And I've had a lot of opportunities since I know him. And if I couldn't play, if I hadn't fixed that problem at the 11th hour, I don't know what, which, what would have happened with that. So, um, so I guess um, here's, the, here's the other thing. There are two things to hold in your, in your hands uh, at the same time. And they seem to be a, a diametrically opposed. And one is to put a, a very critical uh, self-examination on who you are, what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are. And the second is to be happy with who you are and what your strengths and weaknesses are. To love yourself for where you are on the ladder. Because if you're doing your best, even if you suck, if you're doing your best, then that's all anyone can ask, you know? And if you keep doing your best, you're not gonna suck forever. And, and so, you know, I talk to young people, especially high school kids, you know, and they're in that, you know, hell that high school can be, especially us band geeks, right? <laughs> especially, you know, and I was in high school and I kind of 
you know, our band was pretty good. We were winning competitions or whatever. So I, I had a little bit of cred, I guess, but mm-hmm. nothing compared to the, you know, uh, the quarterback of the football team. Right. Right. And, and um, even if the football team sucked, right. It's still, even like, if it sucked, yeah. which, you which could be, the, your band could win all these competitions and the football team could be three and seven. And yeah, people still would be like, Oh, he's the quarterback. But the truth is <laughs> it's not always going to be that way. Cause you get out of high school and your world, world opens up and maybe you're in college and you're with people that think like you, mm-hmm. you know, and then, and then, uh, then you make decisions. You're not just, associating with people who happen to live on the same block you do. Like when you're a kid, you know, you make deliberate choices to have relationships with people. Um, same thing with family. You have a relationship with family because you're family, but I don't know. Family can be toxic too. Mm-hmm. Some of, some people have to make a difficult choice. Like I can't associate with you anymore. And as heartbreaking as that choice can be, it sometimes is necessary. And that's mm-hmm. one thing that I, that I have uh, learned to do is to be able to deal with toxicity, even if I'm working with somebody who's, who's a, you know, a negative presence, that might be necessary, but I've tried a lot, not let it infect me as much, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, I'm not saying that I always turn down the shot, the opportunity, because sometimes it might be worth it putting up with somebody's, you know, negativity to, to, to be able to grow. Because right, that's right. the other thing. Every time you go through a negative thing, you get better. You grow yeah, you because learn. of it, you know, you learn from it. Exactly. You learn from it. If you, if you're willing to. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, when you talk about COVID, I think a lot, that's why we called our EP the reset. Cause we, I, a lot of people I know found themselves kind of examining their priorities. Cause there, a lot of us were home with nothing mm-hmm. to do. All the gigs went away, all the projects went away. So you get up and go, well, what should I do today with my life? You know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and a lot of us musicians learn that playing music with other people in the same room is just the most amazing thing ever. It's, it's therapeutic, it's healing, it's magic, and we can't do it anymore. So it, it, it sometimes renews your appreciation for things that you were taking for granted and, you know, things like that. So um, I, I want to say this, this podcast is deep. We are getting really deep today. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. And I, I'm again, I'm so sorry for uh, being, being so, late, but thank you so much for your time, Gordon. I really appreciate oh my it. God. Well, it was, it's great. I, I, uh, I love talking about this stuff and, and I, and I definitely, it's, it's a fascinating thing for me. Now we did a, a new year's Eve gig and we did a uh-huh. gig the night before, which was my birthday. So and I, we've got a couple of young people in the band. We've got younger people in my band all the time. And this one kid goes, he goes, yeah, when, when, uh, when you guys recorded this song, I was in sixth grade. I'm like, screw you, you little. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Can you believe that, though? Yeah. It, blows, it blows my mind, you know. Well, I think your band's been around for 22 years. Yeah, that's it. And, and so, <laughs> and that's the thing, man. It goes so quick. Yeah. It just, uh, it just goes, and I guess maybe that's a byproduct of having a life in music and, mm-hmm. and doing what you love. And, you know, on my worst day, when I'm writing a Mouseketeer show or whatever, I, <laughs> I, it's great, man. It is to get up and come down here and uh, engage with music. Uh, you know, I can't think of a, be- a better life. I love it. Well, thank you again so much, Gordon. You've been awesome. I really appreciate you. And I, and again, I'm deeply sorry about my confusion. (laughs) (laughs) No problem. It was really, really fun to to hang for a little bit. Congratulations Uh, on the podcast. You guys have the best logo I've ever seen, by the way. 
Really? Oh, I appreciate that. Oh, oh wow. yeah. I need that's to send really... that to my, uh, my brother-in-law's best friend d- did the logo and he he's, he's does design for a lot of companies in, in LA. Yeah. And uh, we were like, I know you're, you know, you're really good at this, but will you throw us a bone and help us out? We'll pay well, you, but we don't have a whole lot of money at the time. Like when we started and yeah, and he, and he made the, he made that logo and I was like, what you and you know and what? Like, backwards, backwards, sometimes having letters backwards looks weird or hard to read, but it doesn't with you. Cause, cause because of the, because of the, uh, the pun that it does, it's great. Really, really great. I, I appreciate that. I'm going to have to, I'll send him a clip of this and let's say, look, people love it. So I <laughs> thank you. I appreciate you, Gordon. Thank you so much. <laughs> 